Hey, y'all, welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. With Halloween being just around the corner, this week felt like the perfect time to remind you about the amazing anthology Night of the Living Queers. A few months back, I had the great pleasure of speaking with one of the co-editors of that anthology, Shelly Page. Shelly Page and her fellow co-editor, Alex Brown, um, are back to give you their well wishes, their happy hauntings for Halloween coming up very shortly. And then we're going to dig back into that initial interview with Shelly Page. If you have YA fans in your life or you teach YA readers, Night of the Living Queers, 13 Tales of Terror and Delight is an amazing addition for the library. So first, we'll hear again from Shelly and Alex, and then we'll dig back into that interview. Wishing you all a very happy Halloween. Hi, everyone. Happy Halloween. Night of the Living Queers has been out in the world for two whole months. It's been an amazing journey so far. We had two launch events, one in New York City with five contributors and one in Los Angeles with three contributors, both of which were well attended and a fabulous time. This month, we have two events to celebrate Night of Living Queers, one at the Rip Bodice on October 26th and one with A Room of Your Own Book Club on October 30th. Signed copies are available at Books of Wonder in New York Skylight Books in Los Angeles, Barnes & Noble The Grove, Barnes & Noble Studio City, and at The Rip Bodice. So pick up your copy today. Happy haunting! Happy Halloween, everyone! I'm pleased to announce that Night of the Living Queers also has two starred reviews and is going into its second printing. Woo! Thank you so much for all of your support, and we hope that you continue to enjoy our haunted anthology. Welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am really excited about our conversation this week because it's digging into an anthology that's coming out soon. I was granted the amazing privilege of having a sneak peek at it. And let me tell you, if you have young readers in your life, in your classroom, who like horror, who are into Halloween, this is gonna be a must add to that classroom library, to that school library. Before I tell you a little bit more about this week's guest, I wanna remind you, as we're discussing this episode, a bit about media representation, I do have my Shifting Schools Media Literacy and Inclusion course. I'm gonna link to it in the show notes, and you're also gonna find a promo code over there in the show notes that lets you take 25 US dollars off that course. That promo code is gonna be live for you to use all summer long. So if you and your school are interested in learning more about the intersection of inclusion and media literacy, consider checking that out. On this week, we're talking with Shelly Page, who is a young adult, contemporary fantasy and horror writer who makes her editorial debut with Night of the Living Queers. Now, folks, I 
<laughs> fell in love with this collection, but I'm not alone. Many of you may recall Dahlia Adler, who is the voice behind LGBTQ plus reads, a tremendous blog that is always highlighting great texts. Dahlia Adler just recently listed Night of the Living Queers as one of her most anticipated books for the year. I am going to link over um, again to her post, Most Anticipated Young Adult Fiction, June to December 2023. So you can see the other titles as well. But that's pretty high praise. And I would say it is absolutely deserved. So by day, Shelly Page is a practicing attorney representing unhoused LGBTQ plus youth of color. And our conversation with Shelly today is going to dig into Night of the Living Queers, talk about how this work came together. And of course, her co-editor, Alex Brown, is just here in the introduction. Alex was unable to make it for the full interview. So Alex has taken on um, the, the great joy of introducing this book to us. And listeners, if you'd like to hear more from Alex, great, because Alex is going to be on a future episode. So here's Alex Brown introducing the text, and then we will dig into our full-length conversation with Shelley Page. Night of the Living Queers is a YA horror anthology featuring stories solely from queer authors of color. All of the stories take place on the night of Halloween, and there's also a blue moon, which is the second full moon of every month. Each story also follows a different BIPOC teen whose life will forever be changed by this fateful Halloween night. So light a candle or grab a flashlight, put on your favorite Halloween outfit, and get ready for 13 tales of terror and delight. The one question I'd like readers to take away from Night of the Living Queers is, on the night of a blue moon on Halloween, when anything is possible, what would your story be? Night of the Living Queers is a YA horror anthology that explores a night when anything is possible, exclusively featuring queer authors of color putting fresh spins on classic horror tropes, and tales. No matter its name or occasion, Halloween is more than a hallmark holiday. It is a symbol of transformation. Night of the Living Queers, again, is going to look at how Halloween can be more than just candies and frights, but a night when anything is possible. Each short story is told through the lens of a different BIPOC teen and the Halloween night that changes their lives forever. Creative, creepy, and queer, this collection brings fresh terror, heart, and humor to young adult listeners. Shelly, I'm so excited to be talking with you about this book. There's been so much well-deserved hype around it online. Uh, listeners, I will, of course, be linking to socials where if you've not seen that hype, um, I'll cue you into where you can find it. Would you talk to listeners about the origin for this anthology? I'm guessing, having read it, it must have been a huge undertaking it is, of course, a wonderful book for listeners of this show to explore when it is out at the end of August, but pre-orders matter so much to authors. So listeners, if you can get that pre-order in, please do and nudge your local librarian to pre-order it. Uh, Shelley, how did you and your co-editor come up with the concept for this anthology? And I'm wondering how, you know, there's having the idea for an anthology and there's actually like digging in and getting started. So tell us a little bit more about the beginnings, please. Yes, of course. And thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be here. 
Um, so the idea actually came to me in the spring. I was seeing a lot of anthology announcements online and um, thinking about horror as I do in the spring because that tends to be the time where there's a lot of hype for fall books and lots of horror books come out in the fall. So um, it was actually the year before last where I was thinking about this. And then finally, I just texted Alex and I was like, I really want to do a horror anthology. And I think it would be super cool if we could set it on Halloween night. And Alex was like, I'm in. I knew I couldn't do it by myself um, because it is a huge undertaking to go um to go through the, the process of getting an anthology out, but I knew I wanted to do it. And Alex is my horror expert. <laughs> um, so she graciously agreed to um, collaborate with me on this project. I really wanted this, I really wanted our contributors to be all authors of color and if possible, all queer authors of color because um, it's such an underrepresented group in the publishing um, industry. And I think especially within the horror um, and just being able to uplift those voices in this kind of fun, creepy way um, is just super exciting. So I reached out to a few authors and Alex reached out to a few as well. And we just kind of compiled a list of people that we thought would be a perfect fit and we got 11 contributors, which is fantastic. Um, and then me and Alex also contributed stories, which brought the total to 13 stories. And it's uh, kind of serendipitous because there are 13 stories and it's also set on the 13th moon of the year, which is an extra moon that happens um, every once in a while. Uh, so it's also called a blue moon. And that is the night that I picked for our Halloween setting. So every story you read will be happening during a blue moon um, on Halloween. So very fun. Halloween is my favorite holiday. Alex's as well. Um, so that's that was a no brainer. <laughs> I, I'm wondering, um, you know, again, working with that many different writers, in my mind, again, that that seems like there's a lot of complexity there. You know, listeners of, of this show, often when they are engaging with work like yours and perhaps exploring it in the classroom, they like to kind of do that meta thing and also see it not just as like literacy building in terms of reading, but also supporting aspiring writers. So I'm wondering when writers are coming and working together, do you have any advice for aspiring young writers, like what that means to you know, and an anthology, even though you are the editor, it's sort of like it doesn't just belong to you, right? It's a like a community collection. Uh, so what does it mean to really value that? Or, um, you know, creativity, I think sometimes there's like this myth around it, like there's one lone creative genius and everyone should just defer and, and listen to them. Um, but I'm wondering if you might just kind of like peel back a layer and talk about that collaborative process and, and how you approached it? Yes, of course. Um, so you're right. When you are working with a bunch of writers, um, I think the most important thing is to respect their creative process and their creative ideas and 
as an editor to only provide feedback that will boost the story um, and strengthen it, but not change it. I think that's um, something that me and Alex tried to do. We had honestly very similar editorial feedback. Um, We have a similar editorial style. So I knew that just working with Alex would be a great fit because we already think similarly when it comes to um to the editorial side of of writing but i think um in particular it was important for me not to suggest anything that would change the story um and to respect what each writer was trying to convey um and only offer feedback that was going to um clarify or um just take it to the next level if it if needed. So I think, I think um, it's, if anyone is aspiring to, to collaborate, I think it's important to just remember that um, you are working with someone else who has their own ideas, and you have yours, but if you can find a way to merge them, um, and not have either one trump, I think that's, uh, that's important. Um, That's important part of collaborating in general. Right now, during Pride Month, when the episode airs, um, I think it's really important that we, again, think about like queerness as an asset and celebrate that. And I'm wondering, you know, when you're a member of a marginalized community, I, I think in a way you already are thinking about collaboration differently. Um, you know, the analogy that I give very often is for my wife and I, because we didn't necessarily have a lot of like models about what a queer wedding or what a queer marriage has to be. It's like you get to decide that for yourself. Um, and I, I think my experience has been, at least in the queer community, we think about community in such an intentional way. So I'm wondering if that, like what I feel like I hear you saying is that you really, you and Alex both really wanted to think about the experience for the other writers and i sort of wonder um is that you know an accurate depiction as i'm saying like you know queerness is an asset this is a mindset that we flex um very frequently or am i way off base there no no you are completely hitting it on the mark um i definitely definitely brought that um perspective with me to every story um and it's great because there are so many different kinds of queer stories in the anthology. Um, you know, we have just exploration of gender identity and of what it means to be queer um, as a as an umbrella term. We have um, an exploration of what it means to love another queer person um, and how you show that love, um, which is something that I tried to do in my story. Um, and I think Alex in, in hers as well. Um, and then we just have fun first loves and we have um, sort of revenge stories, um, which I I really appreciate. You know, queerness is not just a monolith. It's something that um, something that everyone experiences differently, especially when you are of color. And I just love that there are several stories in this collection that are able to explore that intersectionality. Um, Just fantastic. So um, yeah, I definitely think that bringing 
bringing that awareness to to the the collection is is just going to make your reading experience even better. Yeah, I I love that about the collection as well. And, you know, again, I think educators, any of you who are exploring intersectionality from uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, this is a great book that I think, you know, looking and digging into that concept, it's a real asset for that. You mentioned, of course, aside from co-editing, you are also a writer within the anthology. Your story entitled Anna plays with a few popular Halloween tropes, the idea of the Ouija board, full moons, twins, uh, I guess maybe falls into that category too. Um, As a writer of horror, what are some works that have inspired your craft and how do you think readers maybe see like clues of that inspiration uh, come to life in your story, Anna? Yeah, so I was, I knew I wanted to play off some classic horror tropes. Um, and you, you've, you've named the three. Um, so I definitely was thinking of The Shining, just the big twins, creepy type of horror shot that you get um, in that movie and also in the book. And then there's um, a little bit of the stories um, about the love interest and our main character, their their romance. And I was thinking of The Haunting, haunting of Bly Manor. Um, and I loved that idea of almost being like selfless um, and trying to protect um, protect these kids that our main character Elise is babysitting. Um, so I was thinking of that and um, so you'll, you'll see a little bit of that. You'll also see that the love interest name is Danny, who is our main character in The Haunting of Fly Manor. So that is intentional. Um, and then also the movie Ouija um, was just really scary. And I love the idea of a Ouija board. I think we have a, I think we have a few other Ouija boards in, um, in the collection, but this one is particularly special. Um, and when you read the story, you'll see why. You know, I I am not an expert in horror, but again, like just like you know, school me on this if I'm if I'm way outside of um, this being a a thing. But I'm wondering, like, as a genre horror strikes me as being kind of like quintessentially queer because it's always like building on other stories and other influences. And I feel like in the queer educational space, it's one where I see folks being really good at saying like, look, this is something that influenced me. I learned this from this person. Like I'm trying to continue a conversation that was started back when. Like that's just been my experience that folks are perhaps better at like suggesting their influences, giving credit, you know, attributing things and ideas and recognizing like not everything is all the time, like the first idea, you know, um, and, and horror, I feel like most horror films I've seen, like there's often a lot of like shout outs to other creators in the horror space. Does that feel accurate or should I have just been yes, like, no. I'm not an expert in horror. I'm not going to pretend to be. No, no, no. That's that. I mean, I'm not an expert either, um, but that sounds that sounds very accurate. Um, I will also say that horror as a genre is so um, interesting because it allows you to explore these deep seated fears in a way that pushes you to change in order to overcome them and in order to survive whatever is happening. Um, and that's just like a very queer, um, experience. 
um, the experience of coming out, the experience of living your truth, but also knowing that, you know, it might not be as easy as <laughs> it might not be easy. Um, and I loved that. Uh, I love that horror is that horror allows you to explore just, just the, the ugliness, I guess, of some of society's, the ugliness of society, but also celebrate um, overcoming it. And definitely you'll see that in, in these stories. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it's, it's an interesting thing to think about when you're, when you're reading. <laughs> Yeah, I I love that. That's a great reminder. Again, folks, for those of you getting that pre-order in, what a great conversation to be having with students and kind of playing even with the idea of things that we should actually be afraid of versus, you know, mm -hmm. what's something that's like a constructed, manufactured Absolutely. moral panic, you know, and, and the the context of Halloween. I was reading recently, of course, like every time Halloween's coming up, there's always a lot of hype about like, check your kids candy be extra cautious and you know i was reading again like there has basically never actually been a real report of somebody doing that like razor blade in the apple or poisoning of candy and like that's a story that when i was a kid a very long time ago you know like oh, no, that, I, that's mom, been around right yes definitely definitely my mom's like no only eat things that are in wrappers <laughs> yeah um it's it's interesting um and speaking of that like fear that things that you should be afraid of and things things that you're afraid of and things that society tells you to be afraid of um i think that's something i also played with in my story um i knew i wanted the external plot to be very um halloweeny very tropey um, so I picked a lot of tropes um, to play off of, but for the internal plot, so our main character's journey, um, I wanted to explore themes of abandonment. And I think it's really interesting because our antagonist also has that same fear of abandonment and the way that they, the choices that they make, um, put them on opposite sides of um, opposite sides of the story of the narrative but it's just based on their choices and based on their lack of choices and I think um, that that's also something really interesting to um, to play with in horror and 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 with your protagonist and antagonist in general. I, I loved when you were talking about your editorial process earlier and uh, going back a few weeks, Jen St. Jude was on the podcast talking about their brand new YA book, If Tomorrow Doesn't Love Come. It. Absolutely uh, a fantastic book. It, thank so, you. So great. And it Jen is, a, is. Jen is amazing. I, you know, I also, I love like YA authors are always so supportive of one another. <laughs> like YA Twitter yes. is just like such yes. a great space. But um, Jen was describing, uh, editing or the, the process of being edited, the analogy they gave was, you know, like you've kind of have like a window that needs cleaning and somebody is kind of like helping to clean the window so you can see through it a little bit clearer. Ooh. And in you describing Anna, how much of that dynamic that you just described, did you sort of know early on in your rough draft phase versus what were some of the things that became clearer to you um, 
in that that drafting process or that editing process? I think what became clear was this trajectory of where Elise starts and where she ends um, and how she was going to get there and how her girlfriend, Danny, is going to um, be the the reason that she does reach the point that she reaches in the story try not to give away too much (laughs) um (laughs) so yeah I think that and that's something I struggle with as a writer in everything I write in my short stories and my long form novels and it's something that my agent is fantastic at pointing out um and my agent um Rebecca Potos who's fantastic shout out um was able to kind of like tease out that that change in my character um a little bit and I think it just sort of opened up the story and gave me the ability to explore a little bit more um the internal struggles and how Elise's um fears were tied not only to what was happening in the house, but in her relationship and in her life. Um, And then kind of how that fear, how she uses that fear to realize what's actually happening with this ghost. So I think um, it just, it just, a light bulb went off, I think. (laughs) Um, But it's always, it's always interesting. I, I love the window analogy because it is like seeing your seeing it clearer. Um, sometimes you do need help, and oftentimes you need help. I always do. <laughs> I I really I I appreciate so much when writers share that because I think especially for young folks who are just getting started, it's a message that needs like time for them to absorb. Because again, I think like that whole myth about like the creative genius just working in isolation is a really harmful one. Oh no! Yes, I think I have. I have many, many, um, many, many people help me. (laughs) Uh, I've been really lucky this past year. I feel like uh, I've been able to speak to lots of folks who are anthologists across different podcasts I work on, and they all talk about the collaborative process and how putting together an anthology has shifted both their own creative process and the way they think about the art of collaboration. You also, of course, have a daytime job as an attorney, which is really cool. I'm wondering if that work helped you approach the task of putting this anthology together in some way. Like, I don't know if there's any interesting parallels between uh, your legal work and your work as an anthologist. I I don't know if there's like an intersection there or skills that sort of are useful in in both worlds. Yeah, I definitely would say there are skills. Um, I think being an attorney... Um, has made me very into spreadsheets <laughs> work um, at a nonprofit and we have grant reporting and I just do everything on a spreadsheet every single month for my job. So when I decided to put together this anthology with Alex, I was like, we are going to need some spreadsheets. Um, we're going to need spreadsheets for the stories and our contributors and deadlines and payments and just everything in a spreadsheet. Um, and that's just like how I stay organized. I think, um, 
it's just natural for me now to just throw anything that seems really daunting into a spreadsheet so I can see it clearly. Um, and then also I would say time management. Um, it's hard to, we had kind of an accelerated deadline for, for the anthology. So it was very important that um, everyone kind of hit their their given deadlines. And if they needed more time that we were able to have enough wiggle room to give them more time. Um, so that's definitely a carryover skill. Um, and I think just having like an attention to detail and providing like positive feedback um, is something that I try to and try to incorporate with with the editorial process and then also in my in my everyday practice as an attorney um so yeah that was kind of the kind of the mesh uh but in general um the anthology was was a, a nice breather from my 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 usual uh job so it was it was great I'm wondering, since you were talking earlier about representation, if you would talk to listeners about which sort of like media in terms of like TV film better gets the reality of your job. And I'm wondering, like, there's lots of TV and film out there with lots of depictions about court life. And then uh, I don't know if it's the same amount or to a lesser extent that we've got lots of TV and shows that, you know, have a character who their career is writing. Do you feel like the media does a better or a worse job with one of those fields? Definitely not how to get away with murder. <laughs> I'm sorry, but we just we're not like we, I, I feel like attorneys are not constantly like um in that kind of in situation and also would not provide that kind of advice <laughs> um but a show that i that i did like that i thought was a pretty accurate representation was the lincoln lawyer it's on netflix it was really good actually i was watching it and i'm like this is actually probably one of the only shows that i've watched that i thought was um, fairly accurate. The Good Wife also is pretty good, but then mm -hmm. I think it starts to get very dramatic. Um, and I know like people love it; they love the drama. But um, every day wiring is not that heightened. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so if you want a good show, I would recommend The Lincoln Lawyer. Um, and an entertaining show would be The Good Wife. Um. Thank you for those recommendations. I And this is my final question. I know that you are a busy person. Uh, you know, you brought up The Good Wife, and I learned kind of a fun fact about that series that the creators actually knew going into it um, how it was going to end, like when they oh, started wow. the series. And I know not all, all series have that, like, this is mm -hmm. where we know we want it to get to and, and end. Yes. For you as a writer, how often is that your situation where you feel like, I maybe you don't have all of the in-between details, all of the plot sort of like fleshed out, but I know this is how I want it to end. Uh, how often does that happen for you? Or do you feel like that never happens? No, I think it happens 75% of the time. I am a plotter. Um, I like to plot my stories in advance, but sometimes when I'm writing, I will see something 
I will see an opportunity that I'm missing and will pivot. Um, and that's when the ending tends to change. I usually know how I want my stories to end. And about 25% of the time, there's something that happens during the process where I'm like, absolutely, like, this is the way it needs to go. <laughs> and I'll just switch over. Um, I rarely start writing and not know where I want the story to go, um, just because I could just wander in circles, I feel like. Um, and this is for short stories and long form. I like to plot. Um, so yeah, I would say about 75% of the time I can guess where it's going to end, but I'm always pleasantly surprised when my brain like kind of gives me a little nudge and it's like, no, I think this actually would be a better fit. Um, that's always fun too. So I definitely, if you're, if you're a plotter, I would say leave yourself open to seeing other possibilities while you're drafting, um, because you might miss something really cool. I feel like you just like dropped some like very covert great life advice for us as well. So thank you for ending <laughs> on that note. You're welcome. Really, <laughs> looking forward to continuing to, um, again, see lots of folks chatting about this book in the lead up to its release, which is this coming August. Again, listeners, pre-orders, they are a very, very big deal. So if you can get one in, if you can nudge folks who are also consumers of books in your life to do that. Um, and again, like whenever I talk to authors, uh, we talk a lot about how a lot of the readers in our lives, like they also pick up books just because of like word of mouth. So tell yes. folks, tell folks more about the book. Um, Shelly, I, I know that some of the listeners are always interested in inviting guests to come do like virtual visits with students. If there's oh. a listener who would like to reach out uh, to you to, again, talk about your process and your work, what is a great way for them to connect with you? Definitely connect with me on Twitter. It's um, at Shelly underscore P underscore writes. And that is the best way to reach me. You can DM me. Um, and I'm, I'm always available and I try to respond to everyone. So um, please, please check me out. <laughs> Great. So listeners, uh, again, that handle will be over there in the show notes. Thank you again so much for sharing more about this remarkable anthology and um, I'm looking forward to its book birthday. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. <laughs> <laughs>